What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. We are, of course, joined by our super producer team of Noel Brown and Dylan, nicknamed TBA, Fagan. Yeah, we'll come up with one. We'll come up with one. We've been, we've been pretty good about getting back to that recently, haven't we? Yes, we have, uh, I think, out of the many times we've promised to come back and figure out a nickname, we've, we've gotten it there two or three times, yeah, which well, is great for well, us. We're getting better. We're getting better. Yeah. If we can't come up with one right up front, you know, because sometimes we can do that. But uh, in this case, I think we should hang on because it seems like there's a lot of potential in this oh, episode. There's a, yes. there's, a, there's a lot of uh, really, really interesting things happening with this, with this character that we're going to talk about today. And, uh, man, he is a character, too. There's... there's uh, where, where do we begin? Maybe That's the question. Maybe we should start with what inspired us to find this. Oh, good idea. Topic. All right. So, well, yeah, this is a listener email or that, that had come in. Uh, well, geez, boy, it's almost been a year at this point. I, I sheepishly say that it's been almost <laughs> a year because uh, th- this happens a lot. You know, where we put something on the list, we mm-hmm. say we put it on the list and it's really there. Um, but by the time we get around to researching something that's uh, – Kind of heavy like this. There's a lot of material here. Um, sometimes it takes a long time for us to kind of bring that item to the top. You know, the uh, I guess the shorter, the simpler ones are the ones we try to try to knock out, or something that we have personal familiarity with, right? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so these research heavy ones are ones that sort of get pushed back a little bit, but we eventually get to them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the good news. Today and is the day. Today is the day for for Matt C, who wrote in. Um, uh, I think it was April 28th of 2016. So again, almost a year ago. Um, so hang in there, everybody. You know, if you haven't, if you haven't heard your topic in, uh, I don't know, three, four years, uh, you know, you never know. It might come around. You never know. So Matt wrote in and said, hi, Scott and Ben. My name is Matt, and I find your podcast recently, which uh, hopefully is still around listening. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, Matt. Uh, he says, since I found it, I've listened to many podcasts, and, uh, and thank you for your great work. Oh, it's very nice. Thank you. Oh, uh, but he says, also I have some ideas for future shows that I'd like to share, and there's two that I want to mention here. The first one is the one that we're going to do today, mm-hmm. another one that is tangential, but uh, but I think it's also a value. I think we might get to this one as well. Number one request here is, how about a whole episode on the great race car designer and designer of other cool things, Harry Miller? Mm-hmm. So that's today's topic, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the second one is, I find it really interesting that many of the early automotive entrepreneurs and race car drivers were bicycle racers or mechanics before race cars were common, or before cars were common even. Um, I think it would be really neat to learn more about how this happened and how some of these individuals compared uh, these two types of contra- uh, contraptions at the same time. So, like, just as automobiles were kind of coming up in popularity, a lot of people were really fascinated with bicycles at the time. And uh, we saw that over, well, we've seen that in many of these cases mm-hmm. where we talk about historical figures that that's kind of where their start happened. They were bicycle mechanics or they were bicycle racers. or right. um, there was There was a, uh, a strange connection there. And um, I'll give this away right now. Why not? Harry Miller was a bicycle, I guess, mechanic, if you want to call it that. He was he was placing engines on bicycles very early, and some even claim that he was the first. And we're going to claim a lot of firsts in this in this podcast. Uh-huh. And maybe we should even just take a moment. Well, first of all, that's kind of the end of the email. But yes, yeah, yes. he says, "Keep up the good work." That you know, best Matt. Hey, so thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. And I'm glad we finally got around to the topic for you a year later. But we're going to claim a lot of 
first in this episode, and that's something we're a little bit uncomfortable doing because it can come back to bite you, really. Yes, we know that uh, we know that the thing about most great inventions and innovations is that they generally occur in incremental degrees. They they stand on the shoulder of preceding giants, you know. So whenever we come up with a first, historically, and longtime listeners, you'll you'll have picked up on this, uh, we have a mountain of caveats. I mean, it looks like a, a pharmaceutical commercial or something, the yeah. fall the fine print. And I don't know if we'll, we'll really, like, belabor this, this point today or anything, but, uh, you know, as we come to each individual example, but um, just know that, you know, sometimes it's like, it's all in how it's written, too. It's like, the first mm. occurrence of this in a race car. Right. The first occurrence of this in a four-cylinder mm. uh, vehicle that was used uh, in the southeast, or you know, yeah, <laughs> that's, the that's, first that's, occurrence of this in a production vehicle. Yeah, yeah, right? stuff that's like a that. Big one. That is a big one, and there'll be a few of those mentioned in this. You know, that a lot of like, um, you know, first uh, attempt at this in uh, in a race car engine on an oval track or something like that. <laughs> right. So if we don't get every single modifier in there uh you know that's that's our own fault you know our mistake mm-hmm. we, we over you know skipped over it in the notes or whatever but there are a lot of first claimed here that I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with but we'll see i mean we'll talk about and this is not giving a whole lot away here sure. but we'll talk about aluminum pistons we're going to talk about front wheel drive race cars and mm-hmm. four-wheel drive race cars and uh new alloys and all kinds of stuff so uh, there are a lot of uh a lot of firsts that will come up today that we'll we'll, we'll get to. But first, Ben, can I tell you one quick thing before we really jump into this? I feel a story coming on, Scott. It is. I'm going to derail us just a bit here early on because I saw something remarkable this week that I've never seen before. Wait, is this an episode of Stuff Scott Sees? Well, potentially. Oh, Dylan, can we get a Stuff Scott Sees sound effect? Perfect. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> Can you believe that guy? I, I don't know how he does it, but it's a, it's a great match. <laughs> okay. So so here's what happened. This happened, uh, I guess it would be two days ago now mm-hmm. uh, from when we were recording. Uh, I, it, we live in a county here where I have to go in and have the emissions tested on my vehicle. It's a, it's a new enough vehicle that you have to go in and have emissions uh, certification done before you can renew your tags or your license plate stickers, right? So I pull into my local spot. You know, I've gone there a couple of times in the past over the years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm in line. I'm third in line. So there's a, a car that's being tested, a red crossover minivan or something in front of me, and uh, and then myself. And it's an outdoor place. You know, it has uh, – j- it's kind of like a um, – almost like a carport, really, just covered on uh, just the top, really. And I'm sure they've got doors they can bring down and bring the equipment in and everything. But um, it, it's an older place, two bays, and only one was being used. So I pull in. The lady in front of me, after about, I don't know, it seems like a minute, backed out and left. You know, So I thought, that, well, that's whatever. She might have been waiting here for a while. Something's going on with the testing. Right. But I figured, well, that, that shortens my wait time anyway. So I pulled up and got behind the car that it's currently being tested. It was a Camry, a Toyota Camry, mm-hmm. and it was an older vehicle, and they were doing, uh, you know, the, the the test for the older vehicles, which involves them getting on the uh, the, the rollers. There's rollers for the front front wheels because it's a front wheel drive car, uh, kind of like um, picture like dyno rollers, you know, where there's two rollers and the the wheel is kind of balanced between the two and it's spinning. Mm-hmm. So the guy's got the car hooked up. He's got the probe in the tailpipe, and he's uh, the the tester is in the driver's seat, and he's he's watching the monitor over to the passenger side, and he's. You know, revving the engine and the wheels are spinning on the the uh, the wheels or the um, the dyno wheels, mm-hmm. and it seems like the test is just about done because you know there's, they've been there doing that for a while and everything's going fine. And uh, just as the guy goes to get out of the car, I don't know if he bumped the steering wheel or what happened, but the car is still being accelerated because you know you have to take it through these this is rev line. Yeah. So it, the car is still accelerating and the car kind of like it just shifts complete like really hard to the right. And it it smashes right into this box, this big metal box, oh, and all the all the test equipment that's right there. The guy, I mean, it was like one of those dyno accidents that you see online. You know, when mm-hmm. you when you you know search on eBay or, or eBay on YouTube <laughs> for for a dyno accident, it was kind of the same thing, except they don't have it strapped down. It's just sitting there. It's it's like they must have the the, the brake applied or something. Um, so. I've never seen that before. I mean, there's a horrible sound, you know, like a, a grinding sound as the uh, the lug nuts, you know, kind of pounded into this metal box that was over there. I don't know what damage was done to the rest of the testing equipment, mm-hmm. 
I, I left almost immediately. I watched for about ten seconds to see what was going to happen, and then I decided I'm, I'm getting out of here. I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want this guy touching my car at all. So yeah. I, I have yet to have my emissions test done, but I've never seen anybody like. I don't know if you'd say crash a car, ruin a car, but uh, have an accident like that on one of these emissions testers ever before. This is the kind of a first for me. It happened yeah. right. Happened right in front of me. You hear about it, and you can see some stuff on you know YouTube or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess I, I'm I'm glad you're okay. Well, I don't guess that. <laughs> I know, and I hope the person involved was all right. Well, that's well. the thing. Like I, I was trying to think like who you know. The, there was a guy standing next to a white van that was you know right mm-hmm. near there, mm-hmm. but I didn't see another owner. They might have been inside like a little tiny lounge area that they have there. You know, it's just like a little uh, almost like a trailer that's on the lot, really. Yeah, a lot of places, a lot of mission places down here are like that. Yeah, so there's a chance that somebody was waiting in this kind of little lounge place mm-hmm. uh, when that happened, but I, I didn't really, again, I didn't stick around to see the aftermath of this whole thing, but um, the damage couldn't have been too significant, but still, it's, it's you just. You hightailed it? I left right away, yes. Yeah, I didn't feel comfortable allowing that person to test the vehicle. Well, now you're a person of interest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I witnessed the uh, I witnessed the crime, right? And, no. then, and then you sped away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it wasn't. It, there really wasn't significant damage yeah. like that, but uh, it was just unsettling to see. Mm-hmm. I've uh, I saw some uh, unsettling stuff recently because you know the street I live on is a little bit wild. Uh, there's a <laughs> there's a biker bar about a block and a half up from about. Yeah, about a block or two up from uh, our office right here. Yeah. And I will uh, take take a walk, you know, after work, go to the grocery store, chill out at a coffee place or whatever. And the 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 grocery store and the, the coffee place both require me to walk past the biker bar, yeah. which is sometimes a really cool thing when they've got everybody together and they're, you know, they're traveling in the pack, oh, little, in the convoy. Kind of a little raucous over there, maybe? Yeah, man, in a really cool way, too, because a lot of these bikes are tricked out. Uh, you know, they. I, I guess I would describe them as a non-denominational biker bar because I see Harleys there, but I see Kawasaki's and stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen any, like, Triumphs or anything, but my eye's out for them. Uh, so, non-denominational biker bar, that's yeah. funny. Th- oh, thanks. <laughs> but I, I believe it. I don't know if that's the correct term because I myself am not a biker. <laughs> but I saw this one bike. I was I was walking uh, to return some books to the library a wild Friday <laughs> Afternoon for me sounds wild. Yeah, and uh, there's this guy with this big, uh, with this big roadhog that I didn't get. I wasn't close enough to identify, but he had these. Uh, he had running like laser lights on the thing that had this like oscillating pattern that they would shoot out. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, and he had these. He had these huge speakers and. I saw the guy, and let's let's be honest. I'm kind of a nerd, and I've dealt with that. But uh, well, just because you're on your way to the library on Friday night, uh, I mean, hey, I have st- classify yourself. Like I've, that. I have. St- they were cool books, man. <laughs> I don't want to get the fees. Uh, anyway, they were party books. <laughs> they were books on how to how to party, yeah. right? Um, but anyway, I was walking by. And I like see this guy, and he's got super loud music, and then he's starting to rev up the engine. Is kind of uh, just trying to impress people, uh, and it was a group of uh, women in a Camry, and traffic is really bad on the street, so they were stopped because there's some construction there. He's like revving it and looking at him, and uh, this lady rolls down her window, and he's like pretty obviously looking forward to the conversation, and then uh, she yells at him to get a life, and he turned off his bike and went inside, and it was just the most like. A heartbreaking downer thing I had seen. That's pretty sad. I know, man, but that bike was awesome. You mean to tell me that revving his engine and playing his music loud didn't attract the female? <laughs> that's, that's not how you attract the female? Well, I just feel like if you're driving on this street, I don't, I don't think you need to roll down your window and yell at someone. They're already oh, enough problems. Boy, I'm going to have to rethink everything that I do from this point forward. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Did you already get your light kit? I did. I did. Yeah, my <laughs> my my uh my laser light kit. Yeah. That's a that's an unusual one. That's strange. That is, but I I do recommend if you are ever uh if you're ever in this part of town and you like bikes, if you're in the Atlanta area, on, on Ponce de Leon, uh then check out 
drive by a place called Dugan's. I don't know if it's going to be a place where you want to grab a burger or Did whatever. Did you say Dugan's? Yeah. That doesn't sound like a biker. Well, I don't know why that doesn't sound like a biker bar to me, but it, it, but it just doesn't. I don't know, man. I've never met Dugan. I don't know what he's about. Sounds like just a, like a family Irish pub or something. Like, a, yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, it's it's definitely a, it's definitely like a sports bar restaurant where you can see at least twice a month like groups of bike clubs oh, numbering right. like thirty plus. All right, uh, but fair enough. But do they race? Probably is this podcast related to <laughs> racing? Hey, you know what? Definitely, we're 15 minutes in. Uh, we're we're still not really into our topic yet, so maybe to uh, that's, that happens. And you know what I was going to point out too before we begin? Uh, it's it's important to note. Oh, oh, my friend, there is no way we are going to be able to explore do this any justice in one episode. I, yeah, I think we're already resigned to the fact that this is going to be a two part episode uh, because this guy. There's just there's far too much to cover here. There really mm-hmm. is. It's one of those characters, kind of like Preston Tucker. When we started to record our Preston Tucker episode. I think didn't Preston Tucker go into three parts? I believe yes. And we hadn't planned that at all. I think we had planned that to be just a single episode, like it was just going to be one podcast and and that's it. But this guy is is very similar in the way, and oddly enough, their their paths cross. So uh, he's part of this story as well. But whose path? Okay. Here's a question. Yeah. Whose path does uh Harold Arminius Miller not cross? Well, that's true. Yeah, there's a lot of there are a lot of people, there are a lot of um historical figures that we'll talk about mm-hmm. in this episode or episodes uh that uh, that may surprise you, may uh raise your eyebrows really. So just to give some context, if there's if there are any uh any listeners who maybe are a little younger or maybe not super into racing who haven't heard of Harry Miller, um, he has been called, quote, the greatest creative figure in the history of the American racing car, but why? We'd like to give you a little context before we even get into his biography and everything with some of those racing highlights. Yeah, we're going to talk about racing highlights, but I think, uh, you know what, even though it's early on, I think maybe we need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we're back. Great calls. <laughs> well, you have to do it, you know? Yeah, we had a uh, – well, it's a great call because with our 15-minute shooting the breeze. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I kind of get off the handle there. But um, All right, so we're talking about racing highlights, though. Yes. And there's a, there's a lot of them. And I'll tell you right now, we're going to go through, you know, like uh, his history, really. And you know, we're going to talk about him as a, as a person and, and his development over the years. But I think that it's important that we talk about these racing highlights because this really gives you a – um, an insight into what his overall career, like the, the arc of his career, really, because uh, he's involved in a little bit of everything. Of course, oval oval track racing, board track racing. Um, he, he designed engines for boats, land speed record cars, um, just a little bit of everything. The competition, some of these, uh, these Grand Prix cars mm-hmm. and Grand Prix drivers that he worked with. Um, so let's just start here at the beginning. And it, we shouldn't spend too much time on this, but it's kind of a long list of things, but it will give you a real idea of, of who this guy was. So and we'll talk about the connections between a lot of these people, too, along the way. So Miller and Offenhauser won the Indy 500 15 times in the 20-year period from 1921 to 1941. 15 times. That's uh, the Indy 500. That's, and that's huge. That's his chief machinist, Fred Offenhauser. Yeah, yeah. Now, Miller first raced at Indianapolis in 1921, and we should point out that, you know, after uh, the 1940s, the reason that he ended this uh, the stretch of wins is because from 1942 to 1945 they there were no races in Indy because of World War II. So uh, you know that's one thing right there. But man, and he continued on his his um, his designs carried on as we'll talk about into almost into the 1980s really. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the next one is Tommy Milton drove a Miller 183 to 151.26 mile per hour international Class D record at Murak Dry Lake on April 4th, 1924. So. This is a land speed record. I'm not going to list all the land speed records because they're just a, there's a whole bunch of them here. Yeah. Um, so land speed records on sand, on uh, um, you know dry dry lakes. I mm-hmm. guess that's another one. Uh, um, record for the fastest single lap driven on a board track, yep. uh, set by Frank Lockhart on the Atlantic City track in May seventh, 1927, in a Miller 91 rear drive. Yeah, and the average speed is 147.229 miles per hour. Again, remember what we talked about with the board tracks? Yeah. Uh, so imagine driving nearly 150 miles an hour on a board track. Because remember, cars were a big part of this yeah, as well. Yeah, in 1927. Yeah, and <laughs> that's maybe the most impressive part about it. this, is when you consider the time frame that we're talking about. So 1927 going that fast on a board track. That's taking your life in your own hands. It really is. I mean, it's it's danger. It's a dangerous sport. If if you haven't listened to our board track episode oh, for context, go back and listen to that one just to kind of understand what that really means. Yeah. Uh, when you when someone says they were a board track, you know, phenomena for for whatever reason, they were really. I mean, they were really hanging it all out there. These were, are wooden boards, guys. For anyone who hasn't seen that <laughs> yeah. that that track, and nearly um, nearly at a ninety degree angle, weren't they? They were at uh, I think it was sixty seven degrees. Was Pretty the, insane, the, though. Yeah, that was the, the the steepest one in the whole series. Um, let's see. Okay, there's Daytona, a few Daytona uh, records that were broken. I'm, we're talking about Daytona Beach, you know, land speed records, and there was one that was a, a famous one um, on April twenty fifth, nineteen twenty eight, at Daytona. Frank Lockhart um, in his Blackhawk LSR car, which is land speed record car. Uh, was powered by two Miller 91s, and it was clocked at 198.29 miles per hour um, on a warm-up pass, though, however. And on his first serious run at the world speed record, he was going about 220 miles per hour, again, on the sand, 220, 220 miles per hour in 1928. Um, and he was still accelerating when a rear tire blew and there was a fatal crash. So uh, Frank Lockhart didn't make it out of that one. But um, there was, I think there's film of that accident happening. It's just it's a really violent wreck. But uh, you, you get a sense of the speed that's involved. And that car was powered by two Miller engines. Um, okay, there's more board track racing information here. And this is incredible. Yeah. And, and we're talking about cars at this point. Mm-hmm. Out of the 164 board track races held between 1915 and 1931, Miller's won 71 times. Duesenberg's were second at 44 wins, which so is he, quite a gap. Yeah. So he and, and not only that, he's topping Duesenberg's, right? Yeah. That's a pretty incredible competition. So out of the 1,985 cars that started in those in those 164 races, uh, 802 of those cars were Miller's. Duesenberg's were second with 524. So again, he's got the most cars out there. He's got mm-hmm. the most wins. He's he's really a prolific builder at this time in, in mm-hmm. this in this time frame. Um, all right. So the 1921 French Grand Prix was won by a guy named Jimmy Murphy driving a Duesenberg 183, and he took the same car to the Indianapolis 500 in 1922, the next year. 
but he replaced the motor with a Miller 183 and then won the race. And that's kind of what began this dynasty for, um, you know, for Harry Miller because that's the, that 1922 race really uh, was like his second, you know, shot at the, the victory here right. in, in Indianapolis. Anyways, um, in 1923, Indianapolis saw f- uh, five Bugatti Type 30s, mm-hmm. three Mercedes, three Packards, and one Duesenberg and 11 Millers on the track battle it out. Millers took the top four spots in 1923. Again, insane. It's a it's almost a, a loss for words. It's difficult to really articulate just how profound and pervasive Miller's influence on racing is at this point in time. Yeah, and think about who he's going up against. He's going up against Mercedes, Packard, mm-hmm. Duesenberg, uh, Bugatti. He's going up against these guys, and this is a guy that kind of, well, you'll find he has very humble beginnings, but he, but his career took off very fast. He's a smart guy. Um, okay, then there's more uh, European history. There was, um, oh, here's here's something, maybe the most interesting uh, thing, uh, this whole thing, and we talked about alternative history just a little bit um, a, a moment ago before we came on air. Um, there were two Miller 91s that raced at the 1929 Italian Grand Prix uh, by by Leon DeRay, and they both broke the track record in qualifying but did not finish. Now, um, the founder of Bugatti, Ettore Bugatti, bought both the Millers and copied the engine design for his Type 50 and Type 51 engines. So Bugatti, early on, you know, the founder of the Bugatti company, saw exactly what, uh, you know, what Miller was doing was uh, was kind of the direction that he wanted his company to go, copied the design, and uh, and then made those those vehicles into winners for himself, for his own company. Um, oh, here's another one. Miller was, and this is maybe the last uh, little bit of interesting stuff Ooh. here before we get on to, uh, you know, I shouldn't say interesting. The last <laughs> little bit of uh, race history before we get into the man himself. Miller was the first four-wheel drive car to race in a Grand Prix, and that was in 1934 at the Grand Prix of Tripoli. Now, the car only finished in seventh place, but there was a driver named Peter DiPaolo who was driving. Now, that same exact car from the 1934 race uh, with the same driver, Peter DiPaolo, he was racing at the Avis track in Berlin in 1934, and uh, also in 1934, I should say. And while he was running third... The motor exploded right in front of Hitler's viewing stand, and flying parts from that car almost hit him. Now, this is our our alternate history part. Yes. What would have happened had parts of that race car flown off and, and ahead of World War II killed Hitler during the during the Grand Prix race? How strange! I mean, this this could have been history changing right here. Yeah, and then there's that question too that we have to ask whenever we get involved with uh, speculation on history. One of the one of the weirdest questions here is, would the situation have played out into a World War II thing with just a different person in that position? It's possible. You know, second command takes over and uh, and does the exact same thing. That was the plan all along, right? Could have happened, uh, but you know. Anyways, we talked about um, alternate histories and what are what are possibilities, and that's probably another podcast, right, Ben? That's probably different, another podcast. Different, different show, different, uh, different topics. So. Oh, it'd be fun to do. <laughs> Anyways, this, that kind of gives you just a, a quick, brief history. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that sounded like a long list, but that was actually brief, uh, for what this guy has accomplished in his life. There are so many things as we go through his life history. And to give credit where credit's due here, I, I found a lot of this information at a place called the Miller Offenhauser Historical Society, and that's uh, if you want to follow along, it's milleroffy.com. That's the website. O F F Y. Yeah, O F F Y. And uh, Offenhausen or Offenhauser, rather, uh, will come up later in the story, so you'll find out who Fred Offenhauser is. Mm-hmm. Um, Preston Tucker's going to come up. Uh, Evan Rude's going to be in here as well. There's a lot of people that uh, that again he crosses paths with, or they they seek him out um, for his expertise at some point. So we'll find uh, we'll find a lot of uh, historic figures in this episode. And speaking of history, let's look at the man himself. The legend we call Harry Miller today was born, as we mentioned earlier, Harold Arminius Miller. I love that middle name. Arminius? Arminius. Hmm, okay. uh, on December 9th, 1875, in the town of uh, Menomone, Wisconsin, which hmm. I hope I am not mispronouncing, uh, Wisconsin residents. Are those familiar? Please. I'm just going to say Wisconsin. Please feel free to correct me. Let's just say Wisconsin from this point forward. All right. We'll say Wisconsin <laughs> from this point forward. 1875. 
His parents' name were, names were Jacob and Martha Miller, and his father was a school teacher, a musician, a painter. But but Harry was more interested in uh, in like the mechanical things, you know, anything uh, you know that was had to do with machinery. He was fascinated with, right. and from an early age, he was kind of tinkering around with a lot of stuff. And even uh, even early early on, I, mean, I think I think it was when he was fifteen, he dropped out of high school and took a job at a place called the Knapp Stout and Company Machine Shop. And a couple of years, just a couple of years later. He left, uh, you know, his t- his hometown in Wisconsin and moved out to Salt Lake City. And you're going to find that this character moves all over the place. So if oh, we yeah. lose if we lose track of where he's living at this time, he's, <laughs> again, this this kind of mirrors what Preston Tucker did. He moved so many times all over the place. We had a hard time tracking exactly where he was and when. But um, Harry Miller's a lot like that. So early, early on, he left uh, for Salt Lake City, and uh, it wasn't long after that then uh, that he moved to Los Angeles in about 1894. 1895, somewhere in there, right? Yeah. It, he also – this is important. He worked as a mechanic in the 1900s before he got into racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, Sometimes we talk about other figures who sort of start out always wanting to race a vehicle. Uh, his original focus would be carburetors. Yeah, but you know what led him – to that, though, is when he was in California, he was working at a bicycle shop. Now, we talked yes, about just, yeah, just yeah, a moment yeah. ago. Let's we go talked, into this. Yeah. Well, he, ta- he worked at a bicycle shop in L.A., and that's where he met and married uh, his first – it was his wife, I guess. Edna Inez Lewis was her name. Mm-hmm. And uh, then from there, they moved back to Wisconsin again, and that's when he picked up the carburetor interest. He started uh, he started really tinkering around with the idea that um, he could improve on current carburetor designs. Right, and in – December of 1909, he received his first patent on uh, one of his carburetor designs uh, just about a week after his 34th birthday. And from that point on, this guy was just a huge success. I mean, everything he did seemed to be successful um, you know, right up until the end, really. Uh, so only just a couple of years later, um, he formed something called the, uh, well, another carburetor company, right? Right, Master um, Carburetor Company. Yeah, Master Carburetor Company. And that was because his other carburetor company had been purchased by uh, the sons of Charles Charles Fairbanks. And uh, that company had moved to Indianapolis. So mm-hmm. assuming I'm assuming here at this point that... Um, that Harry Miller moved along with the company and continued to work there, you know, to, you know, development, engineering, whatever, um, in Indianapolis as well, because uh, a lot of the story takes place in Indianapolis, of course, close to, you know, the, uh, the oval track that he wanted really to, uh, to compete in. Yeah. Or compete at, I should Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, this uh, this master carburetor company was, uh, you know, something that he had um, branched out on his own again in, in nineteen. I think we said it was nineteen twelve, but it was actually nineteen thirteen when he incorporated the master carburetor company, um, and it was the uh, like a brand new design, I guess, for carburetors. And they started to kind of, well, they were they were dominant, I guess, in racing, right, mm-hmm. um, from the West Coast, and they spread all the way over to the Atlantic Coast, and as a um, I don't get it. It says a way of um, um, evolution, maybe. That's the best, best way to say it. They started to become a success in passenger car industry, in the passenger car industry as well, along with aeronautical and marine fields, too. So he's kind of already starting to interest people in a lot of different um, different facets of, of, of motorsport, really. Yeah, he's he's starting to do something brilliant, which I I call – with immense respect, uh, I call it the Taco Bell effect. <laughs> I can back this up. No, no, seriously, okay. I can back it up. I can back right. it up. Okay. You're, you're comparing Harry Miller and his accomplishments early on and I'm to Taco Bell. And I'm comparing Preston Tucker and I'm comparing Henry Ford. Okay. All let's, right? Let's I'm comparing it. good inventors in general, a lot of entrepreneurs. So for anyone who has seen a Taco Bell menu, right? Uh, if you're at a drive-thru, for instance, they got the big the big plastic sign with uh, what looks like 50 things on there or, you know, 30 things or whatever. Yeah. But really, they have maybe six or seven ingredients. They've just figured out these combinations, and now they're figuring out different applications. That is a strategy for success. I call it the Taco Bell theory just because I was at a Taco Bell when I went, hang on. Yeah, there's not that much stuff actually here. You're just you're finding different platforms for distribution. It's the same thing with a different shell and a different sauce. 
Yes, exactly. That's it, right? So you develop more sauces, you develop more shells, you've got unlimited products that you can come up with. Right, and I don't mean that as an advertisement for Taco Bell, and I don't mean it as a pejorative for anybody involved. I just think it's a clever strategy that applies across things, and the reason I'm bringing it up is because one of perhaps the best examples in this prolific inventor's life arrives very early in 1912 when he makes a substance that he calls alloyanum. Yeah, and we'll talk about that after we come back from a word from our sponsor. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. All right. So he's thinking about how do I how do I build a better carburetor, right? How do I build a carburetor that is even better than the designs I made previously? And he starts delving into material science. So what is this alloyanum stuff? Well, it's an original blend of aluminum, nickel, and copper. And again, he called it alloyanum, I think is how we're, we're going to pronounce it, really. Uh, but it's a brand new substance. He creates his own alloy for his own carburetor design. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guy's got a handle on everything here. He's not really beholden to anybody. This is this is his company, his design, his metal, really, yeah. that he's created this is a this is an unbelievable success for him. It's a it's a huge huge part of his history because um, this makes him a pile of money. He becomes very very wealthy on carburetors alone, and this is only the the beginning of his story. Really, I yeah. Mean, there's the Taco Bell moment. Yeah. That comes in. <laughs> that's right. Well, he starts taking the, the idea that hey, wait, this this alloy is better for than, for things other than just carburetors too. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's kind of experimented with a lot of different carburetors. You know, the single, double, four throat, even eight throat uh, carburetors. Um, he is, he's decided that, you know, I'm gonna take this metal, this, uh, this new alloy that I've created, and I'm gonna use it in pistons. So in 1913, I believe it was, uh, right when he started the, uh, the Master Carburetor Company, he starts taking that same alloy and using it to create these pistons and, and sell them for, uh, race cars. He's gonna put them in performance engines and, and aero engines because, um, you know, in aeronautics, uh, it's, it's very important to remain lightweight and strong. Everything has right. to be very dependable and that's exactly the properties that this thing had. It had the right properties for 
airplane engines, or yeah, I guess I guess the uh, the fastest and best of the day. Yeah, and eventually these became the the gold standard. You know, as you said, Scott, the best and the fastest. Uh, and in spite of uh, selling the master company, he continued fabricating these uh, special carburetors, these high-end carburetors, and inlet manifolds as well for mm-hmm. for tremendous power and, output. And you know what? I'm going to go back on something I just said. I, I had assumed that he had moved to Indianapolis at this point. I think he's still on the West Coast because we've talked about how the, the um, uh, I guess, the, the you know, the commercial success of this thing kind of went from, uh, you know, the West Coast is spread over the Atlantic. And now they're saying that, um, the Harry Miller, the Harry Miller Manufacturing Company, which is now his, his latest company. So, um, he's got all these companies that he starts and sells and starts and sells. So again, that's another thing we'll have to try to keep up with here. He's got so many. I haven't listed them out in a, uh, in a laundry list anywhere. Uh, but this, this place, this, this Harry Miller Manufacturing Company becomes, Sort of like the West Coast mecca for anybody that's um, that has an interest in in performance on land, water, air, anything. So by 1915, at the age of 40, this guy is a a tremendous success already. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he had arrived, as they say. Yeah, and 1915. That's an important year too, mm-hmm. because this is the year that the first, you know, I guess original Miller engine was commissioned. Uh, at this point, it was an inline six cylinder uh, inline six cylinder engine. And it was a single overhead cam aircraft engine that was designed around the current, uh, you know, thought process behind the Aero Mercedes engine. So it had the same kind of uh, general design aesthetics, maybe. Yes. That's the best way to say it. And then an engine followed for a guy named Wild Bob Berman. Now, his connecting rod broke in his 1913 Grand Prix Peugeot. And aside from a few bits that they could, you know, kind of recuperate from this, this Peugeot that had blown itself apart, uh-huh. um, an entirely new engine... And chassis was constructed for this guy. So the the, the first owner of a true um, Miller, well, I guess Miller racing car engine was this wild Bob Berman. Now, Berman, of course, was pleased with what had happened there, and he ordered a completely new car. So no Peugeot parts in this next one. This would be a completely new car. He ordered a brand new vehicle and engine combination, but he never saw it because this guy, this uh, this Berman guy, mm-hmm. was involved in a fatal accident in Corona in 1916. So he never saw what he had ordered, but Miller had built it. And that's a shame, too, because the second Berman engine was a radically different design uh, from any other twin cam at the time. Yeah, and that's the thing is that this Harry Miller guy, he's he's continually just taking he can't stop thinking about things. I have read where um he said that he would often, you know, lay at night awake and his, he couldn't shut his mind off. He was just constantly thinking about uh how to make something, you know, stronger, lighter, faster. Yeah. You know, he's he was always thinking like that. And that's something that his uh, his wife later on said that you know, he had almost like he had something guiding him. Yeah, personality-wise. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned that because there's an interesting quote about this uh, that we'll go ahead and read, and this is from the Miller Office site. He was a funny man, his wife said, meaning that he was clairvoyant. Someone's telling me what to do, he told intelligently sensitive Leo Gosen. I have a control, and I count on it. And that's fascinating because this is a little bit off the beaten path here. But when we do research into the biographies of so many great people of their time, so many people who are, you know, prolific, brilliant inventors, brilliant statesmen, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We find that a surprising amount of them believe that they are set on some sort of path or being somehow guided. Mm -hmm. Winston Churchill, I read, uh, I was reading a biography of him recently. Winston Churchill was convinced that he had heard voices at times that since like childhood or something that would tell him what to do. Isn't that funny? It's like if they have this guiding light, uh, you know, guiding uh, guiding voice, you know, mm-hmm. whatever is, gui- is guiding them in that way. And he, like he said, he can't shut it off. He can't stop it. It's like the ideas just continually come to him. I mean, he may have to, you know, think about it, but something is, is telling him to continue to press on, that there's a better way to do something. And his wife said, you know, it's like he, he's being pushed by something. It's like something is uh, is really... Uh, it's taking over his his character. It's it's making him create and do better things all the time. It's compelling him. Yeah. And also, apparently, uh, if you wanted to travel back in time uh, on your way to attempt to kill Hitler, right, and uh, and wanted to stop by and speak with uh, Mr. Miller, 
uh, he would not have very much to say to you unless you wanted to talk about machinery or specifically engines. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's uh, <laughs> he's that's pretty much all his focus was really. I mean, he was he was so intently focused on what he was doing that even um, outside of you know the, the shop, I guess, whenever he was working. Uh, he was really a quiet person. He didn't say a whole lot. He was very shy, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, wouldn't, you wouldn't think that. I mean, here's this brilliant inventor, you know, somebody who's got uh, probably a lot to share, really, a yeah. lot to say. Uh, but he wasn't really very talkative unless you were somebody that was kind of um, maybe on his level of engineering, somebody that could have a, a really good conversation with, maybe other race car drivers, uh, somebody that he could, you know, extrapolate information from in order to create better parts. Um, but th- those are the type of people that he liked to talk to. He liked to converse with people that were kind of, I, I guess, maybe on his level. And is that is that arrogant? Maybe, <laughs> probably. But but again, he just didn't really. I feel like he was a guy that just didn't waste time on anything that was kind of frivolous. Or yeah, I would say I would even argue that maybe it's yeah, it's it's maximizing production. Yeah, that's what it is. Productive time. Yeah, I think that's what it was. He was just so focused on uh, on um, you know the goal, I guess maybe whatever that goal was in his head. And uh, again, one other thing that I read here is that. Um, and I think this is a common trait among people that are that are like this, that are continually, you know, working on something and improving something. Is that this guy couldn't focus on one project at one time, so he didn't take one project from start to finish and then start the next thing. He had all kinds of projects going on yeah. at one time, and he was thinking about so many different things. And that's probably what kept him up at night is that he's trying to to solve, you know, four hundred problems, not not seven problems. Mm-hmm. You know, he couldn't he couldn't narrow it down into to I've got to have this ready by tomorrow. Uh, you know what can I do to fix this? He, he think he's thinking, I've got fifteen projects going. Mm-hmm. I got to get all these done because I've got other projects I want to start. Well, also if if you're that passionate about something, of course you'll end up with simultaneous projects because you're always having that aha moment, that eureka light bulb moment. Yeah, yeah. So this guy, I mean, no doubt he's a guy that probably kept a, a notebook by his uh, his nightstand. Yeah, uh, you know, right. to write down ideas, you know, late night ideas. Uh, but what he's uh, we're not even. We're not even in 1920 yet, Ben, and this guy no. is fascinating. So, what do you think? Do you think uh, do you think this is time for us to to wrap the first episode, or do you want to uh, do you want to carry on just a little bit longer, maybe? Let's go a little bit longer because let's let's look at uh, some more of the distribution of his new alloy, right? Sure. Uh, so let's get to 1920. So he follows these two engines he built for uh, the ill-fated Wild Bob Berman with a series of 289 cubic inch single overhead camshaft 16 valve fours constructed of this alloy. Uh, and they had wet steel liners oh. among racing engines. These are the first. Okay. I've tried to mark all the firsts yeah. here in my notes. And, uh, and this is one of the firsts, I guess. So, again, you know, these wet steel liners – the first among racing engines. That's that's critical to say among racing engines. And one of these engines was destined to go into a vehicle that was going to kind of live in, uh, I don't know what you call it, infamy? I don't know, (laughs) in history. It's a historical piece, right? Sure. Um, It was placed in a vehicle that was called the Miller Golden Submarine. And this was designed and built in 1917, and it was really really the first streamlined car. This is uh, is an incredible thing. It doesn't... It doesn't have the appearance of what you would think a streamlined car would have, because later they became much, much more refined. Right. Uh, it, it is definitely streamlined, mm-hmm. but it's a lot higher and uh, a lot bigger than what you might think initially. If you you have to look at a photo to understand what I mean, but it was entirely enclosed, and it was like an, I don't know, an aerodynamic race car, mm-hmm. and it was just a sensation everywhere it went. There were, there were people that um, um, were very excited about it. There was... Uh, there it were, looks like he's taking a few cues... From uh, aeronautic design. Yeah, and you know, I, I, you can hear me shuffling through my notes here. I, I, I knew there was another note on this I wanted to, to read here. Um, this was this this was uh, a project that was kind of uh, co-developed between Miller and racer Barney Oldfeld. Now they created this uh, this car that they called they said it was crash proof. Uh, which I don't, it's not really crash proof, but it had a roll cage and an enclosed teardrop shape, of course, as we talked about, you know, this, this, uh, the streamlining, sort of. Yeah. Um, and it was again nicknamed the Golden Submarine. And they say, well, it was fast. It wasn't seaworthy. And here's how they know. It was crashed, uh, in an infield, I guess, that was flooded at one point at some racetrack. Mm-hmm. And the driver almost drowned inside this vehicle that they called the Golden Submarine. Isn't that strange? Oh, wow. A weird little twist on the story, huh? 
Yeah, so, is that how it got the nickname? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Actually, the nickname came before uh, it crashed in this flooded Oof. infield. But uh, but how strange it would it be to drown in a vehicle that was, uh, you know, named after some. Anyways, it, yeah. I thought that was a strange, strange thing. But Scott, um, one, yeah. one interesting detail about this. I'm going to show you a picture of the interior if you hadn't seen it. Is this is a coupe? But it uses uh, staggered seating. Oh, that's interesting. So the driver's uh, the the driver's seat is closer to the wheel, and the shotgun seat is uh, less than a foot, but noticeably like back. And I wonder if that is because of uh, the the narrow design of that vehicle. Because it is a very skinny. All right, skinny now, car. now later we'll talk about uh, the thin design of these cars because uh, when we get to the Indy car days, uh, when he's actually designing the bodies of these cars, yeah, uh, they're extremely thin. And uh, and I want to mention how thin they are later on. We'll we'll talk about it. Um, uh, but anyways, we're still back in 1917, and of yeah. course there's this uh, this kind of phenomena, I guess. And uh, there's a sister car to this one, mm-hmm. and Miller had fitted hydraulic front brakes for 1919 so again 1919 making it the first known appearance of such brakes in a racing car in so, a racing car so again another first um hydraulic front brakes in a racing car in 1919 so we're already now uh, what we're not even in 1920 we've got several firsts that have already been <laughs> mentioned here um well let's oh. talk about his last car of the decade yeah and again another first his last car of the decade was another first. Yeah. Uh, the TNT car with a 183 cubic inch four cylinder. It was named the world's first twin cam engine to use light alloy construction along with these wet cylinder liners. Yeah. And if you look at the patent for this vehicle, the patent shows flat spoke wheels, which are five years ahead of the, Bug- uh, the Bugatti design. Now remember, Bugatti had taken the Miller engines yep. years before this and kind of torn them down and deconstructed them, kind of made them into his design. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also four-wheel brakes and lightened uh, brake drums, and the engine was a stressed chassis member and the profile of what would become the classic shape of the American oval track race car bodies for at least a couple of decades to come. So this is the the onset of the, uh, the, the body design that we're going to see at Indianapolis for... I don't know, twenty more years at least, mm-hmm. and then you're going to see that um, you're going to see that that design morphs into what becomes, in, in, you know, the, the more modern version. I guess you know, twenty years later. Uh, but for a while, Miller's design, this this uh, this TNT car, um, is the uh, kind of the basis for just about everything we saw in oval track racing in the 1920s and 1930s. And it's impressive. It, 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 his whole career is like this. Everything. Every little bit is impressive, and that's why we decided to make this a multi-part episode, because as I went through his history, I found I was highlighting every line of this uh, this biography of him. Can you imagine if we tried to squeeze that into uh, to one episode? Especially, I mean, even, even if we cut all the stuff about, you know, the ill-fated emissions uh, <laughs> running. Yeah. And we probably could have done that. And that poor broken-hearted... Laser biker. Yeah, we still wouldn't have. We still wouldn't have been able. To no, and you know, when I say the biography of him, I, I, I guess I'm uh, kind of maybe glossing over exactly what we're looking at here because remember I said we went to the um, Miller Offenhauser Historical Society to get this information. Well, this is really a, a, a compilation of two books, so there's like 700 pages of material that they've boiled down into maybe 15 pages, and we're trying to, uh, you know, summarize that. Uh, and uh, and this is this is coming from a, a book that was written by a guy named Griffith Borgensen, and he wrote a book called Miller, and it was published back in 1993. And he's the source of our quote. Yeah, and then also Miller Dees, who wrote something called The Miller Dynasty, and that was from back in 1994. And then all this was kind of compiled and edited and put together by a guy named Harold Peters uh, from MillerOffie.com. So um, there's, there's, again, there's so much information about this character that uh, there's no way we're going to get it in today into this episode. So maybe, now that we're at 1920... Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time that we uh, we uh, take a break on the Miller story and come back next week with uh, maybe the the indie history, really, because this is where it really takes off for him. Yes. But before we go, there are a couple things we have to do. Number one, Scott, we have to figure out a nickname for Dylan. Oh, boy. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, the Golden Submarine? That's not going to work. <laughs> no, it's way too oh, long. What about Twin Cam? Twin Cam. That's a good one. That's I not like a bad twin. one. I like Twin Cam. Let's go with Twin Cam. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going to. Never mind. There are a couple that uh, maybe I'll just I'll, I'll forget. <laughs> you can send off air. Uh, I do have one additional piece of 
uh, listener mail I would like to read before we head out. Let's do it. All right. So Dennis C. writes to us, and I want to know if you think this is sincere. Someone's trying to poke the beehive a little here. Okay. Poke the bear. Uh, Dennis C. writes in and says, Hi, guys. I just finished your podcast on 2017 models that will be desirable in 10 years, and I can't believe you omitted the most obvious one, the 2017 Honda Odyssey. Oh, boy. Look at those beautiful lines, potent 248-horsepower V6 power plant and seating for eight, clearly one for the ages. Oh, there's no doubt about this. That guy is uh, he's uh, he's using a stick to poke the badger. That's what he's doing. He's poking the badger. Yeah, he is. I, uh, he's. Uh, oh, what's another one? Like he's uh, he's throwing rocks at the polar bear. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he's uh, he's throwing a boomerang at the kangaroo. Yeah, something like that. Uh, he's definitely. Uh, he's trying to. He's trying to get you riled up. Did it work? <laughs> I I read this. I read this and I I laughed out loud and I and um, <laughs> you're turning a little bit red over there. Maybe uh, uh, a, a crimson color with mirth. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I looked at, uh, you know, I, I I would say I laughed out loud and I was uh, surprised pleasantly by the horsepower, the V6. 248. Mm-hmm. Not bad for a minivan. Not bad. Not bad. I wonder what kind of torque that thing has. I mean, can you haul a big trailer? Can you pull a stump out with a, a Honda Odyssey? I don't think you can. I, you know, I don't know. But it's just used for pure top end <laughs> speed, really. That's what it is. Right. When you're on the, you know, on the track. Yeah, because uh, it's so nimble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dennis, I, I want to let you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I that that email made my day. I laughed out loud for people who are listening for the first time. Uh, Honda Odyssey and I do not get along. No, no, no. Haven't always. We've made our peace. We're civil to each other on the road now. <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought you're still kind of hostile. I am not. A, you know what? I am going to say that I am no longer a hostile driver. Oh, good for you. Yeah, it's not as fun, but yeah. Hmm. Actually, you must you must meditate. Is that what's going on? You're, you're like, <laughs> it's a it's a meditation thing. Like you you find a way to calm yourself in the presence of a, an odyssey. I tell you what, you know, part of it was um, part of it was last time I was in New York and had to call cabs all around the place, right? Yeah, uh, and I, I looked at the numbers, and it's not even. That it's a little more expensive to rent a car, it's that it's more expensive to find a place to put that rental. Yeah, you know that's yeah. what really that's where they really get you. So I would still make save money just using cabs. And these cab drivers, man, a lot of them have like made their peace. They are they are not afraid for it to end on this ride <laughs> at this intersection in this merge. Yeah, but the problem is they're going to take you with them. You know. I was thinking about that too, and uh, I was thinking about that too. And I had what uh, what they call in the South often a, a "come to Jesus" moment, mm-hmm. where it's like, "Well, have I lived my life to the best of my ability?" Because we're going downtown, buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing you know seeing a place where people do ha- to a degree have to drive aggressively made me really appreciate that. There are parts of Atlanta that are exactly like that, right? Yeah. Um, Especially when you get out to some of the other interstates. But now, man, I'm just, I've, I've decided I'm trying to turn over a new leaf in 2017. And it's, I'm, I'm hoping that if I just leave early for things, then I'll never, I'll never feel rushed. Cause that's when it, that's when it gets to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's the one. And that's the one that always gets in your way too, right? So, you know, if you're feeling rushed and you have to get around, Whatever character that would be in front of you to, to make Odyssey. it to your destination, yeah. it would always be a Honda Odyssey, right? Yeah, but, but I don't if you're, know what I did. But if you've got time to spare and there's a Honda Odyssey in front of you, it just won't bother you. That's yeah, what you're I'll, saying. I'll, I'll, I'll drive around them. <laughs> but <laughs> I thought you said this was a new leaf. This is a new leaf. Okay. All right. <laughs> fair enough. One day at a time. Uh, well, yeah, you got me. You got me fair and square, Dennis. So I wanted to read that on the air. Uh, it did, it did make my day. That was pretty, uh, I chuckled. I chuckled. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
But if you want to take a page from Matt and Dennis's book and write to us,、uh, you can find us on the internet. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Car Stuff HSW.、Uh, if you want to catch up with some of the other episodes that we mentioned,、uh, Board Track Racing, Preston Tucker, and so on, you can find every single audio episode that Scott and I have ever done right on our website, CarStuffShow.com. And if You say, "Oh, I've got a, I've got a great fact about Harry Miller. I've got a great suggestion for something you should cover in the future." Or,、um, you know, Ben, let the Honda thing go.、Mm. You know, whatever's on your mind. Solid advice. Solid, solid advice. Solid advice. Should take my own advice sometimes. But I swear, man, they keep finding.、Me. Okay, okay, all right, okay. Well, anyway, yeah, yeah, point yeah. is, point is, point is, our email address is carstuff at howstuffworks dot com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites, or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here, and I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business: Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business: Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.